we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Experience gorgeous, lasting, high-quality hair color with Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Use code RADIO10. was a young and promising Canadian artist murdered on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park in 1917. Welcome to the podcast. This is Who Killed Tom Thompson, and I'm your host, John Allure. procrastinating and and avoiding doing this episode because I I feel like no matter what I do I'm setting myself up for failure with it um, the death of Tom Thompson well if you're Canadian um, you know this story uh, you know like like you know maple syrup um, and and poutine. Um, it, there's there's nothing new I can really um, uh, lend to the tale of this brilliant uh, young Canadian artist. And if you're not Canadian, uh, chances are you really don't give a crap. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, th- th- this is a no wins situation. But I think what I can do is, uh, you know, I was hoping to be able to do this clean, like just a a clean dissection of the Tom Thompson mystery. But I, I think there's no way of doing this without lending my own perspective to it and my experience and particularly the experience experience that we've been discussing in Who Killed Teresa all along. And one of the things that I find interesting in this story is um, uh, one author, I think, refers to it as the, the colorization of, of memory the way over over time uh, stories get mythologized, and and I th- I think um, you know in my own experience, if if you go back to um, the origins, the 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 first word Patricia Pearson wrote in those two thousand and two articles was it was something like, a, for most people, a murder mystery is like a it's like a parlor game. Uh, but for John Allure, it's the, something like the it's the the mystery that can't heal his 
heart. Um, we've said this before, very, very poetic and all that. Um, but I think there's some, um, there's some merits to uh, approaching this work as a parlor game. And there's also some, um, uh, some blinders that, that can occur in taking that way. Um, it's been 101 years since Thompson's death. And, and I do think that over, over all that time, the stories slowly become more and more outrageous, right? Um, you, you know, um, it's, it's almost like Paul Bunyan and uh, Babe the, the, the Ox, you know, rumors are, you know, Tom is seen in the woods or his, his canoe is seen um, floating on Canoe Lake, uh, um sort of uh, you know with without a paddler and yet it's moving and then it vanishes into the mist this this kind of um thing it gets as i say mythologized um but I, I you know there might be something to be said for you know i i think um in investigating things playing it cool and treating it you know with a a sense of um, distance, like a game, there's probably some advantages to that. It's no, um, it's not very productive or useful to get emotional in these matters when you're investigating it, like a cold case. Uh, and for many people, Thompson's death is a cold case. So we're going to approach it that way, I think. that I think that's the perspective we're going to do here. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Tom Thompson and then um, tell you the circumstances of his death and then we can talk a little bit about the various theories that have erupted, whether it was accidental, whether he had committed suicide or whether in fact he was uh, murdered. So step back a bit. If you recall the uh, in the first part of uh, Canadian Timber uh, Trilogy, we were talking about the Gilmore uh, Lumber Company's um, business and their pioneer efforts uh, uh, in Algonquin Park um, in the late uh, late 1900s. And that uh, my my daughters and I went on a canoe trip with um, my cousin Paul to try to find the the remnants of uh, a lumber mill and a lumber camp along Canoe Lake. Um, and the reason for this was there there, there were stories, oral stories, that uh, our great-grandfather had worked in that lumber camp. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the extraordinary things that happened since that podcast is so when I um you know I put it up and someone wrote me and said uh, you know I loved I love that episode I'm working on a documentary about the Gilmores I have several photos would you like to see them I said yeah sure so he emailed me these um extraordinary uh, photos of of life um in um in in Moet uh you know, in the, um, uh, excuse me, in the 18, uh, in the 1800s, the, like 1896 to 1898. And one of them was uh, this, this photo of all the men gathered around a, uh, 
like a train engine. And, and I've, I've since put these up on the website. So all the men from the camp, they're gathered around for this photo. It's obviously a very important uh, photo of uh, the camp and the group. Um, and it's, I'm pretty sure it is at the Moet Station uh, in Algonquin Park. You can sort of see just the, the edges of the, the wooden platform and the locomotive, et cetera, and they're all crowded around it. And, and um, you, you know, these stories of my great-grandfather, um, Edward, working in that camp, as I say, they're all oral, but there's never been a, like a confirming fact that he was there. So I'm looking at this photo, and I'm like, it's a really clear photo. And I'm like, I wonder, and I've done this before. I've seen other photos, and I try to scan it to see if I can, you know, pick him out because I have photos of him in when he's middle-aged and I have a photo of him um, as an older man in 19 late 40s or 50s but I don't have anything as a young man so I'm scanning through this photo and I'm like I wonder I'm like it's like a needle in a haystack there's no way and then right in the center standing on the locomotive I spot a guy who I'm certain is my great grandfather and um, he was a foreman in the camp. So he would have been up higher than everybody else. Who's kind of seated around the, the wheels of the locomotive or on that platform. He would slightly higher status. But the thing that, that, that just confirmed it for me is he looks just like my, my cousin, Paul. So it's like, oh, my God, bingo. And I love when those things happen like that. I mean, it's extraordinary. You, you you make a podcast, you send it out there, and then you get this extraordinary feedback um, coming in from the abyss and, and something that is lost for centuries then found again. Of course, I, I sent it out to my family and everyone said, yeah, that's him. That's Edwards was known as the boss. So it's like, yeah, that's the boss. That is definitely him. Good job, Sleuthy. Now, when we went on that canoe trip last summer in 2017, we didn't pick just any random Saturday to go. We went on July 8th. Uh, 2017, which was the 100th anniversary of the death of Tom Thompson. Thompson died July 8th, uh, 1917. Um, and this is because um, for for many years, unbeknownst to both of us, uh, myself and and my cousin Paul were were kind of Tom Thompson fanatics. Um, we had heard these stories that, hey, um, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, grandpa's father um, worked up at Canoe Lake, you know, what, like and Tom Thompson was at Canoe Lake. You know, was he there at the same time and all that? And now he wasn't. I mean, facts are are pretty strong that um, Gilmore cleared out at the turn of the last century from uh from that part of Algonquin Park when the business went out, you know, when it went uh, shut down, when it went bankrupt. 
And Thompson didn't arrive till um, uh, well over a decade later. So they weren't there contiguously or anything like that, but they were there together. Um, and I've, you know, I've always been sort of fascinated by, by Thompson. He's, um, if you've been following me on Twitter, you've, you've seen that, um, you now know, certainly as an artist, who Tom Thompson is because I've been retweeting several of his paintings. And um, so these extraordinary uh, landscapes of the uh, Canadian wilderness. And what was always interesting about him is, you know, he was self-trained for the most part, um, you know, iconoclast. Uh, but, you know, not only, you know, he wasn't this kind of like, you know, kind of femi artist, you know, painting in salons in Paris. He was like a woodsman, right? And a fisherman. And he was a, like a, a guide in Algonquin Park and this extraordinary painter. Um, so that, for for a lot of us, that uh, element is really fascinating about him. And um, I remember when I was uh, when I was in college at the University of Toronto, um, Thompson is considered a forerunner of a famous group of painters called the Group of Seven. Um, he's not a member of the Group of uh, Seven. Uh, he was slightly older than them, but they did influence uh, each other. And uh, as you can well imagine, uh, who are the Group of Seven? Well, it's seven white guys, right, who who are sort of considered the pioneers of Canadian painting. And the, I guess the other one would be Emily Carr, um, a, a white woman, right? I mean, certainly in that era, you know, you're not going to have a, um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a French painter. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a, an indigenous painter, although later we, we see a lot of that. But at that time, I mean, the only people who could afford to to do that kind of thing were English white guys and this one white woman. I mean, and, and interestingly enough, you know, all these guys, the group of seven and Thompson painted basically Canadian landscapes is what they did. Um, they're kind of the, the Canadian expressionists, impressionists, um, but painting something, you know, the interior and the, the um, forests of Canada, something uniquely Canadian and, and, and um, part of its identity. And Carr, on the other hand, um, painted uh, well, actually ironically totem poles so she did art of native art a lot of totem poles but it's beyond that I mean, when you look at an emily carr um painting you can sense the rain you know of the british columbia um redwood forests and that kind of thing i mean so you see these extraordinary artists and in any way when I was at the University of Toronto, um, you, at that in that era, in like in the early '80s, you could you could walk around the the, the buildings um, of U of T and spot any number of um, Group of Seven works or Tom Thompson works. I mean, you'd go into a common room and you'd be like, "Hey, there's a Tom Thompson," you know. Whether it was at Trinity College, I know. Um, I know uh, University College had several of these sort of um, original paintings, as did uh, as did Victoria College. You know, they've all long been locked up, right? I think um, I think at that era, in that era, it was just thought, well, no, no one would ever think to steal something like that. But we're in much less naive times now, and so the, they're all kept away in in vaults now. But 
I mean, we were exposed to this stuff in a real, a real fashion. You know, it was it was part of our landscape um, to be able to see these works, and I and I think for certainly for me, that sort of started the um, the tremors of interest in Tom Thompson, and and over the years, I've always wanted to kind of go to Canoe Lake f- for two reasons. Because of my life story, obviously, but and also because this extraordinary artist uh, ended up dying up there. And um, so that, by way, is uh, a bit of an introduction. And now um, this is where any Canadian is going to be bored to tears, but I'll try. I'm going to give a brief summary of who Thompson was and sort of the milestones of his life. And I, I promise you, I'll try to be brief with this one because, as I say, if, if you're from Fort McMurray or from Timmins or Perry Sound, you, you, know, you know this story. So bear with me. Thompson was born in uh, Claremont, uh, Ontario, and he grew up in a in a large family. He's the sixth uh, child of John and Margaret Thompson's ten children, and he was raised in Leith, Ontario, near Owen Sound. And um, from an early age, he, along with his uh, siblings, he enjoyed uh, drawing and painting. Um, though he didn't immediately display uh, anything that would be described as a major talent in these areas. Um, and uh, all his life, uh, Thompson had uh, health issues, and at a very early age, he was pulled from school due to um, respiratory uh, problems. Um, but but this uh, uniquely allowed him freedom to explore the, the woods where he lived and to develop a real appreciation for nature. And despite some of his health problems, I think he was flat-footed and this respiratory problem, but he was nevertheless a very good athlete and apparently enjoyed playing football very much. In um, 1899, he volunteered to fight in the uh, Second Boer War, but was turned down because of the medical condition. Um, And he uh, would attempt to re-enlist in the Boer War on three occasions, but he was denied each time. Um, now, Thompson briefly enlisted at the Canadian Business College in Chatham, Ontario, and worked briefly for his older brother, George, at the Acme Business School. And he even, he traveled as far away as uh, uh, Seattle in the United States, where he worked um, uh, as an elevator operator at the Diller Hotel. Um, he was hired by Maring and Ladd as a pen artist and draftsman and etcher. Um, and, and working there, he mainly, you know, produced commercial stuff like business cards and brochures and posters. And um, in 1904, he abruptly left um, Seattle and returned to Ontario. And uh, many have speculated that this was um, possibly due to uh, a rejected marriage proposal um, uh, following a brief uh, summer a romance with a girl in Seattle named Alice uh, Eleanor uh, Lambert. Tom Thompson moved to Toronto in the summer of 1905 
And his first job upon his uh, return was at a photo engraving firm, Leg Brothers. <laughs> Friends described him during uh, this time as periodically erratic and sensitive with fits of unreasonable despondency. And also during this time, he briefly studied with William Cruikshank, who was a British artist who taught at the Ontario College of Art. And uh, Cruikshank was likely Thompson's only art instructor. And um, as I said, Thompson was largely uh, self-taught. In uh, early 1909, Thompson joined uh, Grip Limited, uh, an artistic design firm in Toronto, specializing in design and letterwork. Grip would uh, eventually employ uh, Arthur Lismer, Frederick Varley, and Franklin Carmichael, who soon would form uh, the foundation membership of uh, Canada's Group of Seven. So now we move to the Algonquin Park years. Um, And Thompson first uh, visited uh, Algonquin Park on a canoe trip in, in May of 1912. Um, and it's at this time that uh, Thompson's original painting style begins to emerge. Um, though his work is, is, it's not by many described outstanding technically. There's noticeably, there's like a, a he's got, he's got a real knack for composition and, and color. Uh, and he traveled around Ontario with his colleagues, uh, especially to, um, the wilderness of Ontario, which was um, always a major source of inspiration to his his art, and to earn money, Thompson sometimes worked as a guide, as they say, or a fire ranger in Algonquin Park. He became as familiar with uh, logging scenes um, uh, as with nature in the park, and painted both of them uh, with ease. And um, that's what that's what I would say was really interesting about his his uh his style at this time you, you know if you if you look at a thompson painting uh i'm always struck by the 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 um there's there's a stark beauty to the landscapes there's also like a savage beauty to them like paints storms or Things like this, and the colors are really extraordinary. Uh, you know, when I was um, when I was in Ottawa, uh, also last summer, I, I went to the uh, National Art Gallery. You know, um, rather specifically to see Tom, some of Thompson's art. And um, you know, there's a room with it, and I, I think one thing that really strikes you is you know a lot of the Group of Seven's stuff is these or these sprawling canvases. And um, Tom, a lot of Thompson stuff is very, very little. I mean, if if I hold my my hands up, um, you know, with my thumbs touching each other and, and and my my fingers perpendicular, many of them were that small, because you know he's you know a lot of times the intention was to paint a small canvas in the wilderness. And, and many of them, and almost just like a, a sketch, really. And then to take those back to his studio in Toronto and paint something larger and more elaborate. But many consider the, 
the, the original sketches to be better th- than um, the, the latter um, large outcomes that he, that he would work on. And um, so in, there's, the, there's a room in the National Gallery with, a, you know, just a whole series of these, these small paintings. I, I, you know, I want to guess it's, it's like seven by, you know, 14 or something like that. So multiply you know, like seven by 14. And that's how many Tom Thompson's you have all, all like in this rectangular display. And it's quite, quite extraordinary. The other thing that I think is interesting about it is, um, um, consciously or not, uh, in Thompson's art, he was bearing witness of the destruction um, etched out on the old growth forests and the Canadian interior, interior in the prior century by the Canadian lumber barons. I mean, and I'll put this on my website. A lot of a lot of what he's painting are, you, you know, these wood chip yards. Um, with the remnants of all the sawed logs and, um, you, you know, the, 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 the remains of now dead trees in the canoe lake waters, because, uh, the Gilmores would artificially control the, um, the depth of canoe lake, uh, dependent on their own needs through dams and things like that. So a lot of the forest got flooded and Thompson would paint that. He'd paint uh, the remains of the large alligator boats, which were used to move logs on, on the waterways. And certainly there, there's several are, that are the, the remnants of, you know, these large log f- flumes that would be used you know, much like in the, the Gilmore tramway to to carry uh, the the logs um, down, you know, portions of, of riverways that that had rapids and things like that, where the the stock could be uh, broken up. Of course, in in doing this this journey, this pilgrimage, I of course wanted my my daughters to get the full picture as well. So prior to um, um, driving up to uh, Algonquin Park, we spent a night in Toronto, and and I took them to the to the AGO, the Art Gal- Gallery of Ontario, specifically so they could see some of uh, Tom Thompson's work. Uh, my eldest daughter is an artist. Uh, I, I am not an artist, <laughs> by the way. I know, um, you, you know, I, I know enough to get myself in trouble here. So a lot of people can speak much more el- eloquently about this. But she is an artist, and I wanted to, her to see this. And I taped a little bit of our, our conversation from that um, trip to the AGO. Uh, I'll play it right now. It's a little low, but um, I think you get the point. I'll try to make it work here. What? Oh, you do a little sketch and then you take it back to the studio and do a big This is one of my favorites. And, and they kind of influenced each other. They, they taught in technique. He sort of taught that subject. These are felled logs coming through like a sheet. Right? So what he's basically painting is what your great grandfather was doing. Whoa! Right? Is your great grandfather in the photo? No. I mean, he's laughing so I'm His work is so all of like 
all of this basic destruction, a lot of people think that Thompson is a great naturalist, and he is, but he's not really painting nature, he's painting the destruction of nature. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So, you know, he's, um, Thompson's like 39 years old, I believe, right? He's, um, he's not famous by, by any means at all. He's, he's learning his trade and kind of being stewarded by this um, group called the Group of Seven. And as I say, they're influencing e- each other. Um, but he's he's really an unknown. I mean, his arc is similar to that of Van Gogh, where posthumously uh, he becomes this famous Canadian uh, icon. And um, and if you can imagine, because of the nature of how he's painting, right? He's he's canoeing around the lake, and he'll take his easel and his sketchbook and some canvases, and he'll 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 sit himself on an uh, an island and and paint and then he'll do a little fishing and do a little more painting um and uh you know you know at Moet he would stay right there in um um in the village but uh, if the weather was good he would stay in a in a tent um and if the weather became inclement um what was the the bunkhouse for the Gilmores later became like a a boarding house um, as you would imagine, um, uh, after the railway, uh, came, uh, to Canoe Lake, um, everyone began to see the, the, the potential tourist value of that, that area. And, and I think it was always the intention, f- um, I think they were quite clever when they created Algonquin Park, the, um, the lumber barons, um, paradoxically, um, were in favor of this, um, uh, this proposition of it becoming like a park and it, uh, eventually a tourist spot because they were still allowed and, and are allowed to this day, um, um, logging rights in the area. Of course, you know, you fell an area and, and then you let it grow back and fell an area and, and grow back. Uh, the alternative was, it was going to be developed, you know, that there would be, you know, housing communities up there. And then the lumber barons would get nothing for it. So not so paradoxically, um, they are, of course, in favor of this. So you you had the lumber industry um, living alongside the tourist uh, in, industry, you know, at this time. And even though the Gilmoros cleared out, there were lumber mills in that area, I think well into the 1940s, the, the Gilmore mill, you know, it would burn or be destroyed, but it would be rebuilt or built in a slightly different section. So you can imagine this coexistence at the time. And uh, as I say, if the weather was bad, um, he'd go up to the lodge, which was run. um, um, I can't remember if it's you trainer or Shannon Fraser who, who ran the lodge. Um, you know, they'd sit around, they'd, they'd play cards, they'd, um, you know, have a shot of whiskey, they'd have conversation, this kind of thing. So that's what's, you know, that's what's going on. It's kind of life at Canoe Lake at this time, just prior to his, his death. And, um, and there could have been, you know, there was probably extraordinary pieces of Thompson art that were, were lost. I mean, it's, it's it's well known that because he was going around in a in a canoe 
you know, rather precarious. Um, oftentimes the canoe would tip, right? And, and so if you had a canvases and sketchbooks, they'd, they'd all be ruined and sink and deteriorate at the bottom of, of the lake. Um, so now we move to um, the, the events leading up to his death. Uh, so on July 8th, 1917, Thompson... Um, he's seen with Shannon Fraser, and for, yes, Fraser is the owner of Moet Lodge. Um, and as I say, when it was too cold uh, to camp in the park, he would spend uh, his nights at the Moet Lodge. And Mark Robinson, who is a park ranger, noted in his diary that Thompson, quote, left Fraser's dock about 12.30 p.m. to go to the Tea Lake Dam or West Lake. And Thompson uh, disappeared during this canoeing trip on Canoe Lake. And his body is discovered um, eight days later um, in the lake. The body is examined by uh, a Dr. Goldwyn Howland, who concluded that the official cause of death was drowning. And uh, the coroner, Dr. Arthur uh, Rainey, uh, supported Howland's conclusion that the drowning was accidental. The day after Thompson's body is discovered, um, it was interned in Mowat Cemetery near Canoe Lake. And um, then under the direction of Thompson's uh, older brother, George, the body is exhumed two days later, actually in the middle of the night, um, and it's reinterned in the family plot beside the Leith Presbyterian Church near Owen Sound. Many mysteries here, but to begin with, I want to focus on the issue of the cemetery. So after the body is found, eight days in the water, um, Thompson is briefly interned in the Mowat Cemetery, his brother George arrives. Um, he, as I say, he's dug up in the middle of the night. The, the coroner medical person is sent, I believe, from Owen Sound, arrives late on the train, um, asks to be taken up to the cemetery in the middle of the night, and then says, leave me alone, come back um, in three or four hours. Um which is bizarre. Uh, apparently, he digs up the, the plot all by himself, puts the, the, the coffin on a buckboard. Um, the, the proprietor comes, comes back three hours later, and they, they take it back to the train station. And it's remarked that when they pick up the coffin and load it on the train, that um, the, the, the bearers of the coffin mark, remark that it seems unnaturally light. About Mowat Cemetery, so it's um, just up from the railway spurs uh, where Gilmore's Railway uh, uh, was. Uh, that's, that's where the cemetery is. Um, and um, the cemetery contains um, two, two graves. Um, the earliest are the remains of James Watson, who... Um, who was from Perry Sound and who died in an accident at the Gilmore Sawmill in 1897. And the second is of, of an eight-year-old boy named Alexander uh, Hayhurst, 
who died of diphtheria in 1915. The Hayhursts had a, a cottage on Canoe Lake. Um, and about 20 feet to the north of these two graves, um, up until 1995 when it disintegrated, um, was a cross which marked the spot where Tom Thompson was buried in 1917. And um, some some interesting things here. Um, the the marking of um, the Hayhurst boy simply states Alexander Hayhurst, 1907-1915, our father, which art in heaven, um, a stone marker. Now, the, the earlier marker, um, it's carved in a block of granite, and it's a little more elaborate. Uh, it says, in memory of Jaws Watson, the first white person buried at Canoe Lake. Died May 25th, 1897, uh, being one of about 500 employed at the camp by the Gilmore Lumbering Company, aged 21 years. A lot of information there that is very, very valuable. Um, and then there's a, like a little poem. Uh, Remember, comrades, when passing by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Prepare thyself to follow me. And some rather cheeky lads much later in 1927 added to the marker the following uh, couplet. To follow you, I's not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, we went up to the uh, cemetery when... when when we visited with uh, my cousin Paul. So, and I, I, I recorded a little bit of that conversation. So uh, here it is, um, us at the Moet Cemetery, and Paul is going to tell a little bit uh, more about the story, how the mystery of Thompson, the plot, thickens. Get out of here. After the, he was pronounced dead, and the family apparently came and dug him up and took him to Owen Sound, which is mm -hmm. where the family's from. But about 30 years ago, they dug that up and they found skeletons. Yeah. Whoa. What? But yeah. it wasn't. They said they think height. it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, they think it was a native. But it had a. The coincidence was it had a, like a fracture in the skull. Yeah. And he he had a fracture in the skull. So there's been a mystery ever since. Did they really take him or not? Yeah. And was he really buried here in the first place? And was he really His buried whole death here is in the first a, place? A or was mystery that on top of mystery. Yeah, yeah, it is. Adds to the whole mystery of the mystery, yeah. Which yeah. is who killed him. He didn't. There's no way that the guy, unless he said he was drunk, he stood up the key in the canoe. But how did he hit, how did he get the... the well, if you toppled out of your canoe... Hit your hit your head on the canoe, or if he was by a rock or something by when he fell out. Oh, that's true. But then he had all this cushion lying around his <laughs> around his ankle. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's an expert canoeist, expert woodsman, yeah. expert swimmer. Yeah, yeah. Has, uh, he knows better than he had for to that hit the water happen. Definitely some mysteries here. Um, you and to kind of. Uh, understand them um first off when when thompson's recall that thompson's body is found eight days later and he's examined and they noticed like there's um 
there is like a, a mark. There's a wound to um, his uh, to his temple, and there's uh, some slight um, bleeding uh, um, uh, from one of his ears. It, it, they they call it a a bruise on his left temple, about four inches long. Um, now you got to think that. Uh, well, I mean to begin with, so. So there's 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 that element of it, um, and then exactly thirty years later, this crew goes, and um, you know, and the the thought is, did was Thompson really taken back to Owen Sound, and so they dig up this area, and they, they indeed they find they find a skeletal remains, and <laughs> this this skull has what they initially think is a bullet hole um, to its temple. So they, 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 I think they take a femur uh, back to a me- medical examiner in Toronto, and and it's determined that the, it's the skeleton of an Aboriginal man. So it can't be Thompson, or or maybe it can. There's there's a large debate around this. Um, and anyway, um, the hole is d- also determined to be not that of a, a bullet hole. That po- possibly the hole is caused by uh, an operation that. Um, uh, the um, the person had um, and, and possibly they died at the at the hands of this operation. Um, but again, it is it, it so to to accept that the cause of death is an accident is is hard for some people to um, get their hands around because he was uh, an expert woodsman because he did routinely swim the length. Of Canoe Lake, if if you can imagine, I mean, I think that I think Canoe Lake's about two miles, two miles long, and he would just periodically just swim the whole thing. So how is it possible? Many people ask that he could have uh, drowned. Some speculate that um, he was um, the body was found uh, actually just just south of Gilmore Island, uh, and as I say, some speculate that you know he's he's taken a taking a pee, having a whiz, stood up in the canoe and um, and fell over and there was a rock. He was in the shallows and he hit his head. Some speculate uh, possibly he was too near the shore and he was uh, startled by like a charging black uh, bear. Um, the fishing wire around his ankle has perplexed many, many people. Uh, it was found wrapped, um, some say six times, some say uh, as much as a, do- a dozen times. And, and what is to account for this? Some people feel that possibly he was, the body was tethered and sunk to the bottom of Canoe Lake uh, only to rise somehow and get itself untangled um, eight days later. That this is This is perhaps another theory. But it, at the same time, it's, um, it's um, it's known that at this time Tom had like a a, spra- a sprained ankle, and possibly he had wrapped his ankle in fishing wire with some sort of appara- apparatus to give him additional support. All the more reason to think that if he stood up in the canoe and he was on a fragile foot, possibly he lost his footing, fell in the water, hit his head. So all these all these things are um, uh, are speculated about and formed, you know, the the grounds um, 
for the possibility of, of something nefarious uh, that had happened to Tom Thompson. Um, in order to uh, expand into um, these other theories that he was murdered or perhaps he committed suicide, it, I think um, you need to know um, you need to know a little bit um, about the cast of characters who were um, at Canoe Lake. Um, I mean, I think we already said that. So there's Shannon Fraser, who is the proprietor at the Mowat Lodge. Um, and staying in around the area um, is a man named Hugh Trainer, And he has, Hugh Trainer has a daughter named uh, uh, Winnie Trainer. Um, and um, it's surmised that there might have been a, a romance going on here between uh, Tom Thompson and Winnie Trainer. Uh, the, the third per party that should be introduced is um, uh, Martin Bletcher Sr. and his son, uh, Martin Bletcher Jr. Now, the Bletchers are German. Um, so, um, and it's rumored that they, Thompson and Bletcher didn't get along well and that there were possibly there was a there was an argument uh, the, the night prior. Some speculate, you know, that that Bletcher was on the run, you know, this was during World War One, and that per was he a German spy? Um, did they get into a contentious ar argument about the, the events um, occurring um, in the European field? And Thompson's well-known Thompson was very highly patriotic and wanted to serve his country, but couldn't, he would get rejected. And it did somehow they get into an argument about politics, um, and it it uh, resulted in violence. Was there a love triangle between Winnie Trainer and Martin Bletcher and um, and uh, uh, um, Tom Thompson? Um, so perhaps some speculate that uh, while Thompson on July eighth. Uh, around noon, um, left the docks in Moet Village um, in his canoe. When he got downriver a little bit, um, Bletcher uh, um, proceeded to the roof of his boathouse and shot Thompson with a, shot Thompson through the head. Um, and that would account for the the skull with the uh, with with the hole in the head and all this kind of thing, but I think in in order to believe that, uh, well, number one, you'd have to imagine that no one would hear a rifle blast, um, you know, at uh, midday on uh, on on July eighth, but you'd also um, have to somehow. Uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine that when the medical examined examined the body they noticed a bruise near the temple but didn't notice that it was a bullet hole um on the other hand people say um because of the ex the advanced state of decomposition eight days in the water the, the, the skin was coming off in some areas the the face was bloated it was marked perhaps the examination was done in in haste and they weren't um they weren't as uh, you know, thorough as they should have been or would have been under um, normal um, circumstances with the full facilities of a medical examination room or a hospital, such thing. 
Um, I think the most implausible thing is to speculate that uh, Thompson committed suicide because potentially he was spurned by Winnie Trainer and he was distraught and he committed suicide. I think that's the least probable of um, of any of these uh, these speculations. It's, it, Mark Robinson, who was um, a uh, park ranger and kept a diary. Um, uh, supposedly, originally, he bought into the uh, idea of an accident, but in later years, he came around to believing that Thompson was, in fact, uh, in fact, murdered. The, uh, the <laughs> most extraordinary theory that has been put forward um, is, and it, it involves the fishing uh, wire wrapped around the leg is is this one is the idea that there was like a zephyr or like these a temporal cyclone or temporary storm that arose up on the lake and apparently these do happen quite a bit and that tom was caught up in the cyclone you know lifted several feet off the ground and spun around and the wire spun around his his leg then you know, deposited and dropped back in the water, hit his head and drowned. That um, that is a theory I've I've read, which is um, fantastic, fantastic, really. What do I think happened to Tom Thompson? My cousin Paul clearly believes he was murdered. I think Tom Thompson was the the victim of a tragic accident, um, and he died in his, his in his prime before he fully realized the the promise of his artistic talents, and that's it. But um, nevertheless, there's an entire cottage industry, if you pardon that association, cottage industry around the myth and lore of uh, Tom Thompson. He's, such an iconographic Canadian uh, figure, woodsman, artist, um, sort of brilliant, self-made genius. Um, you know, extraordinarily, people are still, you know, debate and discuss this. Uh, there's a guy on Twitter, actually. His name is Tim uh, uh, Buma or Bauma. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce Tim's name. But he tweets... Um, um, as if he's Tom Thompson, and he'll, you know, he'll every year he'll year he'll catalog and 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 log the um, the events leading up to, to Thompson's uh, death. Um, you know, he'll tweet about the weather conditions in 1917 and 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 speculative conversations or thoughts that had been going on in Thompson's head around this time. Um, Concerning Winnie Trainer or perhaps uh, Bletcher and these folk, he'll he'll tweet, of course, um, these fabulous um, uh, JPEGs of Thompson's artwork as as well. And there's there's others. There's people who who tweet in, in the uh, as if they're uh, Winnie Trainer. Um, I think Shannon Fraser as well. Um, there's a guy who tweets as Gray Owl. Um, Gray Owl was this character um, in the park um, in that era. He's actually a, he, he wasn't the 
Native American at all. His name was Archie uh, Bellany. He's Scottish, um, but he'd dress in the guise of uh, kind of, this is kind of like a impersonation of an impersonation. Uh, Bellany would would dress as if he was a Native American called Grey Owl and kind of uh, worked in the park um, promoting um, conservation. And now we have somebody you know, in the electronic age uh, tweeting as if they're Grey Owl and making observations um, from the era. It's a, I'm not making fun of it. I think it's really wonderful. Um, it's uh, it's sort of a a fascinating layer on on top of uh, you know you can you can go to the park and en- enjoy it for its natural beauty. You can you can canoe it. You can fish it. You can camp it. You can portage it. And then on top of that, there's this wonderfully rich tradition of retelling and telling the tale of the death of Tom Thompson, which I, um, you know, I, I think with the distance of 101 years, you're allowed this element, you're, you're, you're allowed to treat it as a, a parlor game. With distance comes reflection and maybe a little bit of uh, even temperedness, which um, um, is uh, well deserved and I think uh, um, helpful, not harmful. But nevertheless, also with distance, as we've said, we've get we get the cal- colorization of memory, as we've said, and the idea that um, uh, facts dissolve and disintegrate, and sometimes what we're left is with only fabrication threads and um, um, elements that are less than truthful um, and move us into um, a a world of speculation and um, what might have beens. That's our podcast for this weekend. Um... This has been Who Killed Tom Thompson, and I'm John Allure. If uh, if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating on uh, iTunes, Podbean, wherever you happen to listen to us. You can follow us on social media. I'm at JusticeGuy, at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y on Twitter. And there's also a separate um, Twitter handle for the podcast exclusively which is at Teresa Lore at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E you can follow us also on Facebook at the Who Killed Teresa um, social media Facebook page Uh, Who Killed Teresa the podcast Um, and that's it that's it thanks so much uh, for listening and have yourselves a great great day
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.